If it is not important, then why did his name have such a strong effect upon you? Because the Dell Grant that I knew said that if we ever met again, he would kill me. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this episode we are talking about Countdown. Yes. Written by Terry Nation. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Directed by veteran, I think we can say now, director, Via Lorimore. <laughs> First broadcast on Tuesday the 6th of March 1979. The ratings for this 6.9 million, slightly down. I was going to say, that's down from Hostage. Maybe, maybe, maybe people didn't want to tune in after Hostage. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Richard, you're taking us through this. I am. As we said, Terry Nation is back. Now, the original brief for Series B was that Terry Nation would write five episodes. We'll see how that works out as we get into the latter part of the season. Yeah. But uh, the idea was that, he, obviously, he would wrap up the ORAC storyline, which we saw in Redemption. He would then provide the mid-season cliffhanger. Which he did. Which he did, point. which was pressure point. And now we would then get an episode to... Remind everybody that our heroes are still looking for the Federation's control complex. And that's Countdown. Yes. So to get us underway, what are your uh, opening thoughts? So, let me say, Richard, in a lot of these sort of series, Blake 7, Who, Trek, Red Dwarf, Babylon 5, serial-type shows where every episode is its own self-contained story in a bigger Mm -hmm. picture. Sometimes you get episodes that are well-regarded because they're a big event. A season cliffhanger, a major character is written out or introduced, something like that. You also get episodes that are very well regarded because they're a bit outside the box. Maybe a different Mm -hmm. writer or director or something that's a bit strange in the theme. Jewel would be a good example from Black 7 of that. Then you get episodes like Countdown, which simply take the very basic fundamental premises of the series, but just do them phenomenally well. And that's really my take of Countdown. Is it particularly innovative or different or unusual or big in terms of its events? No. It's just quintessential Black 7 done really, really well. Yes, well, we have uh, in the past referred to it as template Black 7. <laughs> we have, yes. And I guess that is probably a pretty good description. You get the Federation oppressing people, you get Blake and his crew, A, trying to resolve the situation, but also fighting against the Federation. If I wanted to be a bit snarky, you could also say it, it follows the Black 7 template by sidelining the female characters. It does, and we will mention that. Yes. I've always really liked Countdown. It is one of my favourites, so look, I'm actually really looking forward to this. It's one that has grown on me over the years. I'll, I'll admit, when I was 12, it wasn't that I disliked it, but it wasn't yep. as exciting as something like a redemption. Yep. But still very good. And, and the more that I watch it, the more I see the subtext in there, appreciate the performances over the years. I do really enjoy this. I do want to mention, it is a very good episode to really just reinforce, at this point in the series what the Federation is and what it's actually like to live under the Federation. Yeah, and that that's actually a note I had here. We do get a very good idea here of what being sort of coerced into joining the Federation and then living under their rule really means. Yes, yeah, so you get those lines about how they destroy the economy, mm. they have no say in their own government. It really does give you this idea of this sort of colonial oppression. Yeah. And I think consistently Blake 7 does a good job in building that sort of a world in the way that, for example, I don't think Star Wars ever really does. 
No, with the exception probably of Solo, which is the one no one liked. Yes, so, that's right. Yeah. Solo actually is the one that, well, I think we said on our um, review for the Doctor Who show, Solo was almost a Blake 7 episode. Yeah. A final little point before we get into enriching you lead us through this episode. We are back with Terry Nation, and I've made a list of a couple of Terry tropes. That a we, couple. <laughs> <laughs> that we need to look through here, um, particularly as Doctor Who fans who have seen yep. a lot of the work of Terry Nation. Yes. So, number one, there is a countdown, which... <laughs> Terranation has in most of his uh, Doctor Who stories. You have the concept of radiation being a threat, yep. which goes right back to the Daleks in 1963-64. Mm-hmm. Indeed, also from that you get the idea of some sort of bomb that destroys all living matter and leaves the buildings intact. Yes, indeed. We get at one point the phrase sub-etheric mentioned, and uh, <laughs> fans of Genesis of the Daleks will know about the etheric beam location. Yes, or indeed the curse of fatal death. Yes, that's right. We get ice caves. Mm-hmm. We get waiting around for something to thaw out, which goes back to as far as the Keys of Barrows. Oh, yes. And we get the name Dell. Yes. I'm surprised you didn't sneak a tarrant or something <laughs> in there. <laughs> so not only is this template Lake 7, but it is very much template Terry Nation. Indeed. But look, there are the couple of opening thoughts I had. Uh, Richard, over to you. We'll crack into the episode proper. Now, we start once again right in the middle of the action. Yes. Um, we don't know where we are, but... We quickly get the idea that there are people looks like attacking the Federation base of some sort. It's quite a hard-fought battle, and there's lots of explosions and punch-ups and shots being fired. And you get the idea that although it is a bit of a hard-fought fight, the attackers are actually winning. Yes, and it's all conveyed with a minimum of dialogue. As you say, Mm. we walk in... There are people fighting. One side is clearly the Federation because they're Federation guards. Yep. And just can I really stop for a moment to praise what happens here? Not only are we actually portraying an actual revolution in Plague 7, not the aftermath of something or the lead up mm. to it, we're actually seeing it happen. Yes. But the way that Via Lorimore does this with a lot of smoke, a lot of extras, but lots of noise and effects off screen. Mm. So I think for every Federation gun you see fired on screen, there's another 10 sound effects. Yes in the background when they cut to the control room which i'm sure you'll talk about in a moment there's just the noises coming from there there's the debris coming from the roof yep. it just with very cheap but very effectively it builds this yeah. idea that yeah there is actually full-scale battle going it really does it's very cleverly done yeah well actually you mentioned the command center now of course we see what clearly are the three speaking parts on the federation side yes <laughs> but again we get this idea that they're clearly very concerned that the attack is going to succeed and that they're going to activate. Yes. We don't really know what activation is at this point, other than it will cause the death of millions. So it's clearly some sort of doomsday device. Yep. And the three characters here are actually quite quickly established. We see that Selson, obviously, is a career NCO. He wants to advise caution, sort of spouts the Federation propaganda that our men will hold them. But I I sort of got... Spare me the propaganda. (laughs) Yes. The Albions have broken through into the outer gallery, sir. The field command reports that despite severe losses, our men are putting up a courageous defence. Yes, spare me the propaganda, Selson. Can he hold them? He's concentrating what's left of his force to make a stand at level three, sir. If they beat him at level three, there's very little margin left. He'll hold them, sir. I'd like a little more reassurance than your blind patriotism, Selson. That's really to stop Provine from activating the device. You know, it's still a 7% chance that we might succeed. Yeah, you don't want to uh, cause the death of millions, you know, when there's a slight chance. No, that's right. The younger officer, Tronos, he's very clearly, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid. He believes all the the Federation hype. Yeah. And then, of course, you have Provine, who is clearly very intelligent, extremely cynical, but ultimately also extremely determined and ruthless. Yes, and very in control. Yes, 
he is not going to be swayed by a bunch of rebels coming into his base. No, it is a very effective setup, and you quickly establish. Well, I always say you establish exactly what's going on, but you establish the tone and the feel of what's going on. Yes. And utterly bring the audience into this, you know, what is going on. Yeah, and it is seven and a half minutes before we get onto the Liberator. Yeah. The device is obviously activated. And, and can I just make a point, given that the actor, you know, his character gets killed at that point, he's no longer in the episode, mm. that grin that he gives as he activates... Oh, Trinos, yeah. That is just really, really creepy. <laughs> it's really effective. We see the rebels taking control of the base, but the device has been activated and we get... Sorry, Quarter. I won you a battle, but I lost you a war. And just as we had the introduction to the speaking Federation parts, mm. we get there a very quick introduction to the other side. Yep. And it's quickly set up that there is a leader, there is his offsider, and then there's this other character mm. who has clearly been brought in as some sort of an expert. Yeah. Or, or, or a mercenary, if you like. Mm. It's not phrased in that way, but Tom Chadburn's character is clearly that sort of role. Yes. Now, before we move on to the Liberator, I will just make one point. We do see the Terry Nation countdown <laughs> starting. Yep. Now, Grant does say that he thinks they have less than an hour. I did a couple of quick calculations based on the times given in the episode. Mm -hmm. If we allow 59 minutes from when it's activated to detonation, it means about every 85 on the counter is five minutes of real time. Right. So we will keep an eye on that as we go through the episode. <laughs> We're now about seven or eight minutes in, and we finally move on to the Liberator. I had the note here that, given that we're actually not going to see much of Jenner and Kelly at all, mm -hmm. at least as Constellation, they are again portrayed here as being very, very competent. Yes. They are not damsels in distress in any way, shape, or form. They're in control. They're technically competent. Yes. They're part of the mission. Blake listens to them. Mm. These are still strong women characters. They're just not used. No, they get to stay on the ship while the boys go down and handle the rough stuff down on the planet. Oh yeah, I fully agree that the underutilisation of them is a huge problem for the show. Yeah. I'm just saying as a minor consolation, yep. at least they're shown to be good at their jobs. Yes. The issue probably with them being underused is also exacerbated by the fact that the female character down on Albion is really just there to basically be knocked out by Provine and patronised. So, yes, that doesn't help either. Um, you know, there's a little scene there where Tom Chadburn takes her hand and sort of gives her a reassuring pat. <laughs> You know, you just don't worry about it, dear. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that because I actually took that scene as being less about her being ineffective and more just showing that Del Grant is a bit of a cad. <laughs> and, you know, that he, he's, he's a goodie, yep. but he's also a bit of a bit of a cad, you know, a bit, yeah, okay. bit, bit of a old school, maybe a bit of a womaniser, maybe, yep. you know, okay. morals aren't quite as... Uh, Perfect is more a little more fluid. Yes, yeah, maybe. That that was how I took it as just right, okay. a bit of character there. Okay. Now we do get a minute or two of exposition on the ship, why the Liberator is in orbit around Albion, before Avon Blake and Villa teleport down. We note that Avon's love to suit is back <laughs> this episode. Lucky Paul Darrow. Yes, indeed. Now, the countdown is now at 722 when the Rebels are trying to defuse the device, which is about 16 minutes after the countdown has started. Yeah, that works. Working on the timescale. Yep. Now, we do get the convenient note here that when they're looking through and taking prisoners, none of them have ever actually seen Provine. So, yeah, I just want to stop and talk about that for a moment. Yep. What that implied to me was that Provine is very much in charge of security here, and he's a very shadowy figure. He, he's not the colonial He's governor. not the governor, no. Yeah. No, and that, that would make sense. We do get a bit of setup for the remainder of the episode when Blake 
and Co are wandering around the base. The spaceship prop from Time Squad and Deliverance is back. The Space Master, yes. Yes. That was good to see it. Yeah, and there is a very nice moment of Gareth Thomas doing his angry acting uh, where Villa opens the silo <laughs> doors. Why don't you do that again? Maybe they didn't hear you. Yeah, that is a nice moment. I noted as well that this is one of the earlier examples of where Villa's lockpicking when he breaks open the uh, launch bay doors. Yep. is really just him sort of waving a little prop yes. at the lock. But I guess it is redeemed a bit in that that is just a basic door lock. And when, mm. he, when he's got to crack the safe, he actually goes through a, a much more lighter. complicated Yes, thing, he yeah. does. Which culminates in him actually exploding the door open. Yes. Yeah. The Albions and the Liberator crew obviously meet and exchange pleasantries and start to work together. Yes. Blake is a recognisable figure at this point. Yes, indeed. Now, our countdown just to uh, break in. When Provine sneaks out of the tunnel, the countdown is at 5.86, which means that it's been running for about 24 minutes at that point. Right. Now, there's probably a little bit of a fudge here because it's at 500, which is only about five minutes later, when Avon discovers that the bomb isn't actually a bomb, it's just the relay. We then get, and we talked about this in the intro, we get the backstory for Albion and why these people have risen up and attacked the control centre. Yeah, it's a very effective scene that, with very conservative dialogue, Mm. effectively portrays the desperation of these people and why they've done what they do. Yeah. Typical Federation policy. Things are more important than people. And the Federation was bleeding us dry. Delivered impossible demands on our economy. Gave us no voice in our own government. We were little better than slaves on our own planet. It's a familiar pattern. We are really getting to the bit where the narrative starts to switch from the Albions to Del Grant. But before that, Mm. we get what is, I think, one of the pivotal scenes in the episode where Provine actually makes it to the rocket silo and has the encounter with the guard that's been placed there. Yeah, this is another really good scene. We're saying this Mm. a lot. This is another Mm. really good scene. It is a really good scene. Provine clearly is very ruthless. He's obviously very self-centred. He is determined that he is going to survive. Provine is very cool. He tries to talk his way through it first. He tries to reason it. And when that doesn't work, he... He then kills the guy. Yeah. Yeah. This planet is important to the Federation. They'll bring in settlers. Repopulate it. You could play an important part in that. You could have power. Position. Help me now. And you won't find the Federation ungrateful. And my family, my friends. I'm afraid there's nothing you can do to help them now. Be sensible. To stay here and die with them achieves nothing. You think I could live, knowing I'd helped a man who'd murdered an entire world? No, Provine. You're not going anywhere. You're going to stay here and die with the rest of us. We're back in the control room. And we introduce Del Grant properly. We learn that the Rebels have hired a mercenary, he has a strong track record, and he has a history with Avon. Now, initially, all we hear is that Del Grant said if he ever met Avon again, he'd kill him. We really, at this point, probably move into what I'm calling the second half of the episode because the proper introduction of Del Grant really is the bit where Corder and the Albion start to move into the background and it really becomes about Del Grant and his interactions with the Liberator crew. Now, Avon is obviously a bit apprehensive about meeting Grant again. Hello, Del. It's been a long time. I heard you were dead. I heard the same about you. 
wishful thinking, perhaps. I'm glad the stories were wrong. I felt cheated. We have some things to settle. And I did have the note here, it is actually a really nice break in by Blake at that point to bring them back to the task in hand. You two can talk about the old days some other time. Right now we have a problem that's just a little more pressing. So again, we get this setup of an idea. It's mm. not all dumped on us. We're brought in as an audience, which is very good. The other thing that I find interesting, and I want to explore this a bit later on in the episode, in more general terms though, but Blake hasn't heard of Grant, mm. but he certainly is aware that there are people like Grant doing this sort of thing. Who are organising these sort of rebellions and, and helping resistance groups. Going back to our countdown, we're now at 4.25, which is about 25 minutes or thereabouts before it detonates. And Villa says they have less than half an hour when he teleports up to the ship. Yep. Again, I suspect there's a little bit of fudging of the countdown at this section because this is the bit where they use Aurac to crack the code and then Avon and Delgrand teleport up to Libra to get kitted out and then go down into the polar base. But Yes, talking about all that, I just had a couple of points to mention. Yep. I do like the little exchange there between Blake and Grant. One more thing. If anything happens to Avon, I will come looking for you. I got the feeling that actually you said as much for Avon's benefit as for Grant. Yeah, it's interesting that little scene where they're sort of starting to circle each other in the corridor and Blake is very carefully just make sure that they know he's there in the background. Yes. And yes, he then gives his little implied threat. Yes, and the way that Grant reacts is very, look, mate, fair enough. You know, nothing was going to happen, but fair enough. Mm. And I think it's very much overtly making sure Avon knows Blake is on your side. Yeah. Just feeding into the idea that we don't get everything dumped in us in a big block of exposition at this point. We get hints of the unresolved matter between Avon and Del Grant. It obviously involves the death of somebody who was captured and tortured by the Federation. Clearly was very important to both of them. And Grant believes that Avon ran out. You notice Avon really is quite reluctant to open up about this to Blake. Yes. Um, and even when Blake pushes him, he still doesn't really say anything. It's just, it doesn't matter. It was a long time ago. I think these interactions are really good. Mm. Another interaction that leads on from there that's really good is that exchange on the Liberator between Avon and Grant, where they're talking about, well, do I get a gun or that sort of thing. It's very underwritten. There's almost no dialogue. It's, it's done with looks. It's done with looks, yeah. That thing of, yes, you get a gun, but I'm going to make sure you know that I'm gifting this to you. This is a sign that I trust you, but yep. only just. And Grant's also playing it as dude, we're about to go down to a Federation bomb thing, like, I get a gun, like, this, this yeah. is how it works. I'm not going to kill you until afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all done with looks, it's really well done. It is. Now, of course, they do teleport down into the polar base. Another note here with the countdown, the counter is at 200, which is just under 12 minutes, at the point where they actually get the device out of the ice. Mm-hmm. We get the use of space heaters. Yes, I did those space heaters. <laughs> There's also another really good unwritten moment there where... Avon is moving the device around and Grant sees him what could almost be patronising. Careful, you'll trigger it. And the look Avon gives him is just really get... Just sod off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really good. So before we sort of really delve into the Grant stuff and the stuff in this scene, a couple of just minor points I want to mention here. I love the idea that even in this ultra-technological world, burying the thing in solid ice is still the most effective way to protect it. Well, it does. And it takes some time to get into it in there with the axe. Yep, and then they've got to melt their way, and that's just like a really yeah. cool idea. And again, harking back to what we said about the way the opening scenes were played, there's again just really good use of cheap but effective stuff to make mm. it feel like 
this is a real ice thing. You've got the sound of dripping water the whole time, the way that it's filmed, using actual film on this occasion. Yeah, well, this had to be done in a proper tank yeah. uh, because of the water all over the floor. But... Yeah, so just, again, really good attention to detail and minor things that really mm. set up this and, and set up the background for what's a really good scene, but in the end it is about Avon and Grant. Yes, Avon gets to give his version of events, and really with the expectation that Grant isn't going to believe him, mm. much less forgive him. You used the visa and got out of the city. You left her there. That's right. But that was a week later. Anna was already dead. You're lying. You left the city the same day, before the Federation found Anna. You could have got her out. No. She came looking for me. The patrols found her. It was only after we got word that she was dead that I left. You expect me to believe that? Not particularly, but it happens to be the truth. So we are left... Really, the, the thing is still unresolved. And Grant even says, look, there's nothing changed between us. If there had ever been a time when I could have given my own life to save her, I would have done it. The only grain of consolation that I have is that Anna knew that. She died because of you. That's all that matters. There's nothing changed between us. I didn't really expect that it would be. While this is all going on, we get the defusing of the actual device. Yeah, now, I am going to make a small note here where they're working inside the thing. I know some other commentators have pointed out the somewhat unfortunate staging of this scene where you have two men in close proximity doing things with their hands out of shot while they're panting. But um, I've never noticed that or taken it. No, and I have to say, watching it now for this... Look, once you sort of know there is that read on it, I can sort of see why, because there is a couple of unintentionally suggestive comments in there, like lift the flap back and my hands are cramping. But it's certainly not the read you get from the scene. No, No, I didn't get that at all, of course. But look, I am going to mention it, because I have seen it mentioned elsewhere. No, fair, fair enough. After they've had the big discussion about Anna, the countdown drops below 150. So again, I think that's a little bit of a fudge in terms of timing. In story times, they've only been working on the bomb for about three minutes. So, yeah. as I said, I think that is a bit of a fudge. Yeah. But, I mean, look, we do get the tension. There is that ever-decreasing countdown. We then go into the final scene in the polar base, where the countdown drops to 63, which is less than four minutes before it's due to detonate, where they take their teleport bracelets off so they can't be teleported out. We get to see Avon's space drill. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for a long time, I thought those pre-drilled holes in the detonator tubes were actually a real production fail. Yeah, but no, they specifically say they're enlarging them, not drilling them. Yes, he does specifically say he's going to make them bigger. Yes. So I've learned something, actually, from this. We have the whole thing where Grant's trapped by the falling beam and Avon attempts to rescue him. And we could probably add this to our list of Terry tropes. That whole one last difficult thing... Yes. That one last hurdle that they need to get to uh, deactivate the bomb. Yeah. Now, I'll give praise to that bomb prop because Mm -hmm. it is a very simplistic and straightforward but believable prop that the audience can understand. Yes. And it also means that unlike those sort of terrible cliched countdowns where you know it's going to stop at three, it actually allows the countdown to go all the way to zero. The bomb activates in terms of the plungers go down, they're arrested and everybody's safe. Yes. Well, it's very clear with about four clicks on the thing to go, Avon puts the rod in, yeah. and then he just, yes, waits for the countdown to complete. And I guess you probably end up clearly, you know, Avon being willing to sacrifice his life for Del Grant doesn't maybe resolve the situation between them, but at least it, it allows them to start talking again. Yeah, absolutely. I've probably got two final points just on this before we close this part of the discussion off. 
The first one is we don't find out until right at the end of the scene. The reason that Granny's so angry with Avon is that Anna was his sister. Yes. That's really kept back until right at the end. Yes, as you pointed out, you get to know that something happened between them. You then find out that it's about a third person. Mm. You then find out that it's about someone called Anna. Yeah. And whilst I think you can clearly see what the relationship between Anna and Avon was, yes. you don't finally get why Grant cares. No, why she's important to him, no. Yeah, until you find out that she was his sister. Mm. And therefore, why Avon cares about Grant. Yes. Why did you help me? Perhaps because Anna is your sister. And one final point I had there... We see, as the countdown's getting closer to zero, Blake refuses to teleport out when it drops under his safety margin of 50. Yes. And only have Villa there trying to wrench his arm up so he can call the ship. Do you think Blake stays until the end, which implies clearly that he trusts Avon to come through? Or do you reckon it gets to 20 and it's like, I've only got about a minute left, I'm going? I actually think that he can stay to zero because yep. presumably the effects of the bomb take a while to circulate around the planet. And so he's got That's a bit... cutting a real fine, but yeah. Sure, but, but I, I think that if it's starting at the polar cap, yep. it's like, well, it's got to zero, it's gone off, I've got some time to get out of there. So I've always found it to be a very um, a very Blake gesture in that he seemed to be staying to zero, but I think he knows that he can get out. Yeah, okay. So, look, really, the final part of the main discussion is obviously Provine and Star One. Yeah, I actually don't have a lot to say here. It's fairly straightforward, I think. Well, it isn't really a big part of the episode. I mean, it's clearly setting up something we're going to see in the coming weeks. Absolutely. It's the bit that slots this episode into the ongoing narrative Mm. that really has gone all the way through the season. True. Although, look... I think Provine is really good. I think Paul Shelley does a great job with him. Absolutely. He doesn't really have a big part in the episode. I mean, there is that implied menace that he's lurking around in the background. He's sort of moving around different locations. Yeah, I think if you're just watching this, you're right. His presence is far more than it is if you're actually sitting there looking for Mm. him and taking notes. I think you're right. But it is a very effective performance. It is. We have, obviously, the bit where Blake gets to play detective in the tunnel. And I have to say, a couple of episodes ago when we talked about Killer, I particularly, but I think you agreed with me, Richard, Mm. made comment about how Blake was taking very scarce and scant information and extrapolating very detailed conclusions together very quickly. Whereas I think this was a much better example of Blake taking evidence and Mm. showing his intelligence in actually putting that together and making it work. And I think that was done far better here than it was in Killer. Oh, for sure. We have the bit where he goes looking for Provine, which really, I think, can only be about 15 minutes before the bomb detonates. You you do have to wonder, actually, what Provine himself is doing at that point. Maybe rifling the technical stores or something when they grab him to take Blake to the silo. Yeah, that's my assumption, yes. Yeah, because he must surely know he's running out of time. Yes, We do get the bit of the cliche where, you know, you have the two characters fighting over the gun and it goes off and you don't initially know which one of them's been shot. Yeah, look, it's it's a cliche. It is. So be it. Yeah. Yep. One of the last couple of notes I had here on this, you get to see where Provine has been shot and he's clearly dying. Blake really gets, again, quite 
aggressive and manic yes. that this bloke might die before he divulges what he knows. So we now know that Blake's motivating factor is he wants to find where control has moved to. Yes. Particularly having lost Gan in the first attempt. Yep. He almost needs to validate Gan's death and his failure by, by going on to destroy control. By going control. on to destroy control. Yeah. And clearly it's very hard to find control and he's found one possible link. Yep. That might get him there, and that link's about to die. Yes, but you know he's very aggressive. He shouts at Provo, and he's shaking him. But we get our setup for what we assume is going to happen over the next few weeks: that Control is now called Star One. Yes, and that a cyber surgeon called Dockley is the only one who knows where it is. You may still have a chance if I can get you to our surgical unit now. Where is Control, Provine? Star One called Star One now. Dockerly. Cyber Surgeon. Only Dockerly knows. Where is Dockerly? Where is Dockerly? <laughs> See you in hell. I see that's going to play a role further on in the series. Mm. One final point. And I guess we then obviously have our little coda at the end of the episode where we're all friends again. Avon and Grant shake hands. And I've got to say, we've made fun in the past of characters that logically and reasonably would go on with Blake, but don't because they don't have a contract next episode. (laughs) On this occasion, though, Grant's reason for not doing so is both he has a job to finish, he wants to help Albion, and they owe him money. Yes. So so it's actually quite reasonable. Of course you wouldn't go on the Liberator. So (laughs) this is one occasion when we don't call that out. No, I think Avon and Grant clearly are at least at an understanding if they're not completely reconciled, shall we say. And then you have the nice moment at the end where Avon says that Blake wouldn't understand uh, (laughs) his relationship with Anna. Very well underplayed by both Mm. of them. Yes. Yes. So a couple of just minor points I want to mention at this point. Again, in terms of the production. Yep. I like the way that all the characters here are actually given good motivation and good Mm. reasoning. And again, I want to praise that attention to detail. Another example is where Provine is going to escape in the rocket Mm. and the Rebel has smashed the relays. This means that the Rebel isn't your usual sci-fi Blake 7 He's not a red shirt, no. Yeah, he's not a red shirt. He's not just a dumb guy following orders. This guy's (laughs) smart. He's worked out what might happen. He's worked out how to stop it. He then gets dialogue. This really does make you feel like you are... In a society, the rebels are part of that society. Mm. They're not just extras. No. And that's just another way that this is all elevated uh, above everything. Mm. And while I'm talking about production things as well, I just want to praise the slightly different take that Dudley Simpson does on the music here. He actually does put in a really good effort here, including just some really unusual stuff for Black 7. The use of the Chinese gong mm. for Provine, for example, is very good. Very familiar to Doctor Who fans from the talent of Wen Chiang, where he uses it a lot as well. But yeah, just that unusual sound when Provine's around. Yeah. Really well done. And one final note I have, and we'll give our normal uh, thank you to making Blake 7, which is that the little scene there of Villa going up to try and find Blake near the end of the episode and he gets the directions wrong. Apparently that was an ad-lib by Michael Keating. Cool. Bit of, bit of humour. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two points that are just about the narrative generally. The first is that obviously here, once again, we have a callback to earlier in the series that rewards the long-term viewer but doesn't alienate the casual viewer, yeah. and that's Avon talks about his history. Now, 
If you don't know the show, he's just talking about his history with Anna. It's all very new. But if you do know the show, look, if you squint and look just so, it is possible to reconcile what he says there with his story in Spacefall. It doesn't quite work because the world feels very different. Yeah, that was a note I did have because he says a couple of times that it was a long time ago. I'm not sure whether the implication there is it's something that happened before his fraud that got him transported. Okay, I hadn't thought of that. Um, Whether it's something that they did some time ago. And I guess the inference being is, even after whatever it was that happened with Anna happened, he clearly was caught some time later, because they say that he used the exit visas to get out. Mm. And obviously he's had an encounter with Grant at some point during that, where, you know, Grant threatens to kill him, basically. That's a good thought. I hadn't thought of that, but you're you're right, yes. Yeah. I wonder if that'll come up again in the series. (laughs) And the very final point I think I'd want to end the discussion on, Richard, if you've got nothing else, no? is I just want to have a quick conversation about Blake and Grant. Yep. Blake has spent now probably two to three years of his life mm. fighting the Federation via the Liberator, and obviously he's done stuff before that. And here he encounters somebody who is fighting the Federation in a very different way, and arguably a more effective way. Yes. In that, like Avalon in the past, mm. Grant actually although he's being paid in a way that I think Avalon wasn't, Grant arrives at a planet, incites a rebellion, frees them from the Federation, yep. and moves on. There, there is a population that is tangibly freed and removed from the Federation. Yes, they, they use his services, basically, to help them organise their rebellion, revolution, whatever you want to call it. And yep. it's interesting, when Blake and Grant have the conversation, they actually talk about it from a point of view almost having very different roles here. This is Grant. Good to meet you. And you, we've been hearing about your strikes against the Federation. Well, you've been hitting them pretty hard too. You keep it up, you'll put us out of business. <laughs> that I wouldn't mind. If it meant breaking the Federation, nor would I. And the way they're talking there about putting each other out of business really implies mm. that they're almost different parts of this machine. They've got different roles. And I wonder what effect it has on Blake's psychology at this point, where perhaps his frustration that he's tried to do all these big picture things mm. and not really succeeded, but other people have taken a much more local grassroots approach, Mm. maybe getting better results than him. Well, we have flagged that before, and I think it was during the discussion on Pressure Point. You know, they've made a couple of big attacks. They obviously got ORAC and Serverland, etc., are extremely concerned about them. But when you look at somebody using Avalon as the example, who, who was said to have started resistance groups on 30 worlds or something... Yeah, what has Blake actually achieved? Yeah. Other than the fact he's got a kick-ass spaceship that the Federation want. Yeah, and he goes around and he, you know, he's destroyed a few bases and mm. broken some ciphers. Yeah. Yeah, so I wonder whether that as well is going to affect Blake's determination at this mm. point. He, he's actually got to put runs on the board. Yes, indeed. Maybe we'll see that play out over the next few episodes. Maybe we will. Shall we move to our regular segments? Yes. As usual, the first of our regular segments is guest cast. The first of our guest cast this week is Tom Chadbon as Del Grant. Yes. Now, he has credits going back to the late 1960s. He is our Rumpole link this week. He is in the second episode of Rumpole. Yes, the alternative society where he plays the undercover hippie cop. Yes. It's a very very funny performance, actually. (laughs) Now, because we're Doctor Who fans, and I'm sure a number of our listeners are as well, he is, of course, Duggan in The City of Death. One of the... Classic Doctor Who stories. Yes, and he comes back later in The Mysterious Planet, or Trial of a Time War, depending on how you want to name it. Not one of the classic stories. No. <laughs> no, and he's under a helmet thing, so... Yeah. He has quite a long career. Look, he's still working now. He was 
Neris Hughes's boyfriend stroke husband in the later seasons of The Liver Birds. Yes. He was in a very early production of Arthur of the Britons. He had a recurring role in Couples. Later on in his career, he did 51 episodes playing Henry Williams in Casualty. Right. And probably one final note with Tom Chadbon, he is, of course, for anyone who listens to the Blake 7 Big Finish audios, he does appear in some of those. Oh, okay. That's yes, good. but we'll save that for a later discussion. Well, we will. He also appears in Paradise Postponed, which moves us neatly to Paul Shelley. Ah, yes. Who plays Space Major Provine. Now, he also has credits going back into the late 60s. Nicholas Nickleby in 1968 was his first big role. Around this time... Of course, he was in quite a well-known series, The Secret Army. Yes, I think it's actually fairly well established that he was cast off the back of that in this role. Yes, and he then went on to play actually what is a very similar role in a series called The Fourth Arm. Yeah, he sort of had a decade, decade and a half where he was very, very much in high demand. Mm. The latter part of that, he of course appeared in Doctor Who as the Minister for Persuasion. Friendly, I hope. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> yes, in uh, Fort of Doomsday with Peter Davison. He did 25 episodes of Revelations. Fairly early on in his career, he was in one of the big BBC adaptions of A Tale of Two Cities where he played Sidney Carton. Yes, that's the Barry Letts yeah. uh, in the early 80s. Yeah, He was one of the leads alongside Frank Middlemass and David Threlfall in Paradise Postponed and Titmus Regained, yep. which were quite big dramas at the time. Mm-hmm. He has also done a fair bit of work with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yes. And I think now does a lot of stuff with the National Theatre. Okay. Mm. So yes, and indeed he's still working. Uh, yes, he is, yes. Mm. Now, moving on to the Albions, we have James Carey as Corder. He has credits back to the early 60s. He's in quite a lot of bit parts in a lot of stuff. He's in episodes of The Saint, he's in The Avengers, he's in Department S. He's in several episodes of a series called The Lotus Eaters, which is one of the Michael J. Bird thrillers. Yep, he was the Duke of Monmouth in the first Churchills. He had a recurring role back in 1963 in Emergency Ward 10. <laughs> In the right. later 60s, he did 29 episodes of Champion House. Right. And in the 80s, he had a recurring role in Triangle, which was a fairly oh. uh, notorious... <laughs> was notoriously cheap, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. Plus, he did a stint in Emmerdale. Uh, yeah. He did. And he sadly passed away in 1994. Quite young. Now, Richard, we've got five sort of minor roles here, which yep. we'll work through. I did have a couple of notes here for Lindy Alexander, who played Raleigh. She's in a couple of episodes of Yes Minister. She is, as a reporter. Yep. She was also in a couple of episodes of The House of Elliot. Yes. In the early 90s. Now, she has done a fair bit of stage work. Uh, A few years ago, she wrote a stage production called For Goodness Sake, which was to protest at a proposed exploratory oil drilling rig in Surrey. So, okay. So, yes, she is still around. Oh, she was at that point. And the play was a series of little sort of playlets and monologues and things, which included Ron Moody. Oh, okay. Hmm. Moving down through, we then have Robert Arnold, who was Selson. Yes, so he did turn up in Faulty Towers for an episode. Yes, he is. He's one of Sybil's friends in the anniversary episode. But his big credit, and I think probably what he's most well known for, is 132 episodes of Dixon of Doc Green as Detective Constable Swain. He also had a fairly long career, starting in the 1950s. Again, he was with the RSC in the National Theatre. He was married to June Brown, who's best known for EastEnders fan as Dot Cotton. Right, okay. Yes, and he uh, he passed away in 2003. We then move on to Geoffrey Snell, who was Tronos, he of the Death Grin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a couple of credits I noticed there. Enemy at the Door, and he had a recurring role in Erebus, The Aftermath. Yeah, now he appears to have moved to New Zealand during the 1980s. This is actually one of his very first roles. He's in an early episode of The Bill, 
but he moved to New Zealand where he's actually in quite a bit of stuff. He's in Shortland Street, uh, which is oh, sort wow. of their answer to Neighbours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in Hercules and Xena. <laughs> yep. Okay. And he's also in, for Australian fans, he was also in the New Zealand underbelly. Again, he appears to still be working. Yes, as is Sidney Keane, who plays Ventnor. Yep. Now, he's got some stuff going way back. He was in The Last Days of Pompeii. He's done a lot of sort of police procedural stuff. I know he's been in A Touch of Frost. He's been in quite a bit of The Bill. He's in Silent Witness, that sort of thing. Yeah, he's also done bits in Minder. Uh, he's in Lovejoy. He does quite a bit of stage work too, I think. And the final one we have is Nigel Gregory as Arian. Now, mm. two credits that stood out for me here, Richard. He was in a Doctor Who spin-off, Canine and Company, as the police sergeant. <laughs> yes. And he was also in Rumpole and also in the Alternative Society yes, with, with Tom, Tom Chapman. Chapman. Yeah. Yes, he's in Coronation Street, UFO. He's in Sorry, which was a comedy with Ronnie Corbett and things like 2.4 Children. Now, he seems to work as a voice coach okay. these days. But again, he's still around. We'll now move on to the Liberator database. I had a couple of points here. We get the use of the ranked space major, yep. which I think builds on our theory that there is a military service which has commanders and majors and all the rest of mm-hmm. it. But if you are in a elite and you yep. are a space major or a space commander... Well, we know that space means more important. That, so. That's right. So this sort of implies that he's... Again, we use that idea of them being sort of like the SS. Yep. So that he's part of that elite part of the unit. Of course, we get the first mention of Control being called Star One mm-hmm. and the first mention of a character called Dockley. Yep. Doesn't really specify what Provine's role in moving Control was, but he was at least part of it. It also clearly means Blake's been spending some more time with Orac since Pressure Point, digging out more information. And we also get mentioned here that the troops sitting on Albion are part of the Federation Space Assault Force. Yeah. And they are the particular crack troops of the Federation, yep. which very quickly, again, is a small detail, but just establishes a bit more depth about what's actually involved on this planet. Well, it's interesting because we are told during the episode that it's really important to the Federation. They don't then go on to say why. No. But get the idea that it's perhaps a little way out, maybe from some of the regular trafficked areas, because when they're looking at the rocket, they say that Albion is 500 space hours again, space hours being more important (laughs) than regular hours, which is about three weeks from the nearest habitable planet. And, of course, as we said earlier in the episode, we do get the idea of, how the Federation came in. They strong-armed Albion into joining the Federation and then basically just take total control. Yeah. So that takes us on to, look, it was the 1970s. Richard, I know you've got a couple of points for this one. We've sort of mentioned, as we've gone through, particularly Series B, some of the real-world uprisings and revolutions, etc., that were taking place. One we haven't mentioned is the bush war in Rhodesia, as it then was. Mm. Now, by the time Countdown would have been filmed and went out. There had been the original settlement between the white minority government and the more moderate native groups. Yes, that's true. Which was then ignored by the UN and pretty much everybody else. But later in 1979, you have what are called the Lancaster House Agreements, which then obviously paved the way for the transition of power. Yeah, that's a good parallel there. I also noted that although we have some very good effects and some very good production values in this, the launch doors are very 1970s technology, <laughs> unfortunately. But it was the 1970s. It was. Now, our next segment is What Happened Next? So this is another example of exactly the sort of episode that we introduced this segment for, in that Blake has been to Albion. Mm-hmm. Albion is now free. The Federation's been removed. Blake can jet off in the Liberator. Yep. 
but what actually happens next to Albion. And I wondered, and I guess perhaps assumed that part of Grant's role now is fortifying the planet. Yeah, and, and I guess, look, it's always easier for an occupying force to hold mm-hmm. a territory rather than to seize or invade a territory. Yep. So it's harder for the Federation to come back. But do you think the Federation do have another crack at getting Albion back? Well, again, and I suppose as we referenced a few minutes ago, it is stated that it's important to the yeah. Federation, and I guess it really comes down to how important, really. Yeah. Whether it's got this week's most valuable item in the universe, <laughs> um, or it's the other place where they might want to pay him 239 or something, I don't know. But you're right. I mean, look, his next role then could be, you know, they've now seen off the Federation, now they have to raise at least a militia. So his next role then becomes training a militia so they can fight back if the Federation do try to retake the place. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thought. We are obviously, as we've alluded to a couple of times, Blake is still looking for control and he now knows it's called Star One. We would expect that will play out as we go forward over the coming weeks. Yes. We're now probably at our lighter segment, which is what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? And it's interesting for an episode that has Avon in a very front and centre role, Mm. he actually doesn't get all that many good lines. No. There are a few though. There are a few. It would be stupid to be shot up by our own allies is one that I like. Yeah, but I think actually probably the joke there really, I guess, is Villa's comeback where he says, not only stupid, painful. (laughs) I really enjoy Paul Darrow's delivery of the two words, hello, Del. (laughs) It's been a long time. (laughs) Yes, he's very apprehensive. Yes. Yeah. What's arguably the best known Avon quote probably from this episode is, if there had ever been a time when I could have given my own life to save her, I would have done it. The only grain of consolation I have is that Anna knew that. Yeah, look, that's good, and he does get that very acerbic. Depends what you'll prefer, being crushed or frozen to death. But yeah, it's a very understated performance, both in the way that Avon is written and in the way that Paul Darrow portrays him in this one. Yeah. And I think it is an early example of what we'll see more in the future, where if Paul Darrow is playing against somebody who is perhaps trying to upstage him, rather than going bigger, and I think Tom Tadburn is trying to do that, yep. I think rather than going bigger, Paul Darrow goes smaller, and therefore has a bigger contrast. Wait till we meet Colin Baker in a couple months' time. Now we are now really at the end of the discussion, so it's time for our Player of the Week. And who's yours? I have been wrestling for a few days as we've prepared for this with a couple of options. Yep. My runner-up is yep. Terry Nation. Because he's done a very good script here. Yep. But I'm going to give it to Paul Shelley as Provine. I think that's a really good performance. Yeah, okay. He actually was my honourable mention. Yep. uh, As was Terry Nation. I went for probably the slightly more obvious one and went with Tom Chadbon. Yep. Probably the reason I didn't go with Paul Shelley was I think he is really, really good. And yes, he has that air of menace. It's probably he maybe just wasn't in the episode perhaps quite enough. Sure. Really, for me. So, as I said, I went with the more obvious one, which was Tom Chadbon. Yeah, look, I think Tom Chadbon gives a very good performance, but Mm. I think Paul Shelley's is a more noticeable one and a more powerful one. But the fact that we've got a number of good candidates there, and frankly, V. Lorimore would probably be worthy of a mention for this as well. Yeah. We've really praised the production here. The fact that a number of people, both in front of and behind the camera, Mm. are really in contention for Player of the Week this week, to me, really just sums up this episode. What a great episode this was. As I said at the start, it's not special or dramatic it's Mm. just done really really well production acting script it all comes together and it's just pure Mm. black seven yes as we said at the start down to the fact that it sidelines the female characters which just to wrap up is probably one thing we actually didn't really touch on 
No, it's kind of hard to make notes about something that's not happening. No. But it is an unfortunate developing trend. It is. And unfortunately, it's also probably showcased in one quite, I would say, unfortunate scene where Jenna and Callie are sitting there by the teleport and Callie's sort of tapping on the... And Jenna sort of turns around and tells her to stop. Yeah. They really should have had more to do this week. It is a shame, yes. Mm. But other than that, really good episode. Yep. So, that's our discussion of Countdown. So we'll be back in our next episode with A Voice from the Past, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got a lot to say about this one. So have I. Um, (laughs) This might be a more interesting discussion, perhaps. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But in the meantime, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Asteroid PK-118. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. going to tell me about Anna? You wouldn't understand. Wouldn't I? I doubt it.